Uh, we're going to look at Israel, the Abraham Accords, very much building upon what we were looking at last year, and then look at Britain, and then briefly at the end, look at Ukraine and Turkey. Let's look at Israel and the Abraham Accords. Now, this is a bit of a general uh, title, Abraham Accords in 2022-23. It will cover about the third of the talk and deal with issues that we looked at last time and develop those themes. Uh, and so we can build upon that picture. I believe that for our generation, the Abraham Accords is a wonderful sign because it shows how God is working among the nations to prepare the nations for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Uh, and that is the final stage uh, before the Lord Jesus reveals himself to the world. So it shows to us as we see nations who were hostile to Israel now changing uh, and being friendly to Israel that we are approaching very rapidly the time of the end. So it is a very important sign to us. Um, so for Christadelphians, the whole basis of our understanding uh, centers around the promises which God made to Abraham of old. And the first of those seven promises was revealed in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And we know that's not yet being fulfilled. Uh, nations have been blessed and cursed, but in Abraham, all families of the earth have not yet been blessed. That belongs to the kingdom age. Uh, and so what it is, it is the basis upon which not only individuals accept the Abrahamic covenant and the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's also how nations accept the position of Israel will depend whether they will be allowed into the kingdom age or, or whether they will be rejected. And Brother Lucas told us of the big system uh, of false worship who will oppose the coming of the Lord Jesus uh, and fight to the death because those nations will be excluded because they're goat nations in the language of Matthew chapter 25. So what we see, uh, if we just look at uh, two themes that run through scripture, one theme is a preparation of individuals down through the centuries. God has been calling individuals, the Davids and the Abrahams and the Apostle Pauls, individuals to prepare them for that role of a place in the kingdom, to be immortal rulers, uh, to be with the Lord Jesus, the immortalized Lord Jesus, to rule the earth. But running in parallel is this secondary work of preparing nations for the coming of the Lord Jesus uh, and determining whether they're going to be sheep nations, acceptable, or whether they're going to be goat nations. So we looked last time uh, at this little triangle which depicts the kingdom uh, with God, it's a theocracy, on earth the Lord Jesus Christ, mortal, uh, and the saints, once mortal, now mortal, now immortal. Uh, and then beneath them are the, uh, are the mortal population. So these are nations who have accepted the Lord Jesus as Israel's king 
and the one that they have to submit to, the son of the God who created the heavens and the earth. So Israel, underneath them will be Abraham's other children, these Arab nations who are turning to the uh, work with Israel, to bless Israel now, uh, and then the other sheep nations, nations who in their uh, time of opportunity will... Um, accept the Lord Jesus as their Messiah. So we looked last year at uh, Matthew chapter 25. We're not going to turn to it. I'm sure we're all acquainted with Matthew 25. The three parables that are given, the first one is the parable of the ten virgins, uh, and we have no problems in accepting that uh, that represents the Lord Jesus, uh, represents the saints who have to prepare oil in their lamps. That's our duty. We're all going to sleep if the Lord tarry uh, in the sleep of death, but there will be a coming together, a resurrection. And we will be judged upon the amount of the word of God, the oil of the word of God, that we have absorbed into our minds so that we can be of use to the Lord Jesus. No good knowing the truth, but not living the truth. That won't be of any use in the kingdom of God. And so there is a judgment. And those that have built up a store of the word of God, they are the uh, five wise virgins, uh, and they go into the kingdom. Whereas the foolish ones are excluded. And the next parable was the parable of the talents. The uh, ruler going to far country, giving money to his servants to trade. Uh, and again, what was expected of those that received these gifts was to use their talents uh, wisely in the service of the Lord Jesus, to bring growth to their understanding, to bring others to the truth, to you know, work for the Lord Jesus, to realize that we're here not to serve ourselves, but to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so we again see that there's no problem that that is uh, a parable that uh, is very much to do with the um, saints. But the third parable is of quite a different nature, the sheep and the goats. And it very clearly is set out. It's a time when Jesus is sitting on his throne in his glory. So the resurrection has taken place. The saints are immortal. So it can't apply to the saints. But as it says, it's for the nations. Uh, and the nations are going to be judged as to whether they have uh, been uh, accepting of Israel and blessing Israel, or whether they have been cursing. And so, to combine what our first two speakers have uh, put together, various timelines, uh, we can see that these three parables apply to different phases. As has been emphasized, the first thing is the return of the master to the household. And the uh, change from mortality to immortality involves those first two parables, the oil and the talents. And then follows, sometime later, the Battle of Armageddon, which uh, is the destruction of Gog, who before then has come down into the land. With the destruction of Gog, then the Lord Jesus establishes the kingdom in its nucleus in Israel, uh, the Jews see the salvation that he brings, repent, uh, and become the nucleus of the kingdom, uh, and the gospel goes out to the rest of the world to submit. 
and that is the period uh, where the nations are subdued and submit. Uh, and finally, uh, there comes a time when all nations that are there have accepted the Lord Jesus as king. And so the kingdom is then fully established. Now, it's difficult to put times, but I believe that that period between the return of Christ to the household to the Battle of Armageddon is at least a ten-year period. In other words, it's saying to us the return of the Lord Jesus is very close. We, we see things moving. Uh, Brother Luke has uh, encouraged us to see things moving, but we're going to be called away long before that. And then that's based upon Leviticus 23. And then other scriptures would uh, encourage us to see uh, a period of 10 years and 30 years, uh, 30 years of warfare in Europe when the beast system is totally destroyed and exterminated, making a 40-year period like unto the time of uh, Israel coming out of Egypt because during that period the Jews from around the world would be gathered back to their land. They too will have a judgment. They will have to accept the Lord Jesus as their Messiah. If they refuse, then they won't be allowed to live in the kingdom age. They will die. Um, and only those who accept the Lord Jesus will come into the land and receive their inheritance. And then the rest of the thousand years then can flow on. So that, the interesting thing is that that arrives at a jubilee period and God works in jubilee time zones. And uh, so is it 50 years is a very significant uh, period. So what we saw last year is how goat nations who have been hostile to Israel can change into sheep nations. It is possible to change just as it is for ourselves. We can turn from being unbelievers to being believers because of contact with the word of God. And many nations, and especially the Arab nations, many of them descended from Abraham, can see in Israel that here is a power that is different from everybody else. And this is what brings the nations down because Israel is different from anybody else. They accept or they proclaim that Israel is a state for Jews. You can come and live here if you're not a Jew, but everything is run on the basis that this is a nation for Jews. And so Jewish ideas and laws will apply. And that's what the nations hate about Israel. And so a nation can change from being a goat nation to a sheep nation by accepting um, Israel as God's people and a right to live in the land. This is the great change that has come about in uh, the last few years. Uh, it's been happening gradually, step by step, but in the past two years, just two and a half years since the Abraham Accords were signed, these nations accept Israel's right to the land and to the city of Jerusalem. It's two levels, one for individuals and one for nations. And it's a great sign to us that we're so close to the coming of the Lord Jesus. And the correct understanding of the order uh, of events is so important to us. Uh, we know how Protestants have many strange ideas, and sadly within our own community, 
this was something that was sent two weeks ago. Uh, and his concept was that hateful Arab nations round about Israel attack her. And Jesus returns, the Mount of Olives splits. He saves his people from these Arab nations. Uh, and because of all the spoil that the Arab nations have, uh, Israel suddenly is very rich uh, and dwelling safely because the Lord Jesus is, is there and uh, under, they're under his control. Uh, and then Gog sees this wealth and wants to take it for himself uh, and is destroyed. And so the other nations see the wisdom of submitting uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that is fundamentally flawed because Scripture tells us that Abraham's children, these Arab nations, are, are going to be blessed in the kingdom age. And that this time of blessing which Ezekiel 38 talks about, it is not... Um, that's interesting, I can scroll that, that's so much easier. Right. Um, that this time of blessing is actually, in God's eyes, a time of trespass. <coughs> because they're not trusting in God for protection, they're trusting in the mighty things that they have developed themselves. And that's why they have to be humbled. They've been victorious against all their enemies for the past 70 years. But the day is going to come when they're going to be overwhelmed and broken as a nation and humbled when the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints come and save them and they'll be transformed, as Zechariah chapter 12 tells us. And so it's only after they have been broken as a nation that they except the Lord Jesus Christ. So it, it, the, the two verses are actually in the next chapter, and we know that Ezekiel 38 and 39 have to be read together. And the next chapter makes it abundantly clear. God says that he's going to be jealous for his holy name after that they have borne their shame and all their trespasses, whereby they have trespassed against me, when they dealt, dwelt safely in their land and none made them afraid. So it's clearly not with the Lord Jesus Christ being there as their king. That won't be a time of trespass. But Israel dwelling safely, making her own treaties with the nations, at his trespass in God's eyes. They have refused to acknowledge their God as the only one who can truly save them. And so our historical understanding fits all the scriptures. As time goes on, it stands the test of time that Christ returns, raises the dead saints, gathers the living saints to judgment. And I believe that's at Sinai. And then in this period between then and the invasion of Israel and, uh, by Gog and the destruction of Gog at Armageddon, then there's this great work which... Brother Stephen talked about the Elijah work, the work among the Arabs, beginning this transformation of the land. And Gog invades, Israel is destroyed and humbled, a time of great fear and problems, great destruction, many Jews killed, many Jews have to flee. That is the time when Christ and the saints now come as a body out of Sinai to Jerusalem 
This is when the Mount of Olives splits, and with great power, the Lord Jesus demonstrates that he is the Son of God, the one who has control of the world of nature. And the whole armies of the uh, Gogian forces, Europe and Gog, Russia together, will be destroyed upon the mountains of Israel by the saints using their spirit power to destroy the enemy. And so, as a result of that, and as a result of the uh, great earthquake in, when the Mount of Olives splits, there will be this river of water that rises. And it's into that river will the Jews be baptized into the Lord Jesus, just as on the day of Pentecost, when they recognized, what can we do to be saved? We have been, for 2,000 years, have denied the Messiah. And yet God is merciful because they repent and never will turn again. Uh, they become his people. And then follows the period of the proclamation of the gospel and the period of the nation submitting or perishing. And everything beautifully fits and all nations will be blessed. Abraham's children will be especially blessed. Uh, and it gives us the right order. God saves first his household, then his nation Israel, then Abraham's other children, and then the Gentiles. So, as we said, probably ten years between events one and four. So, that's what makes the Abraham Accords such an important sign to us in this uh, day and age. And we know that the nations who have now formed agreements, uh, Egypt and Jordan, were long before the Abraham Accords, but countries like Sudan and Morocco, Bahrain, um, UAE, uh, and Little Bhutan, just uh, beyond India, uh, have made these agreements with Israel. Uh, and what is interesting is that just beyond this map, if we went to put the eastward part of it, we have India. Uh, and Israel and India work very closely together. They, they are both sides of a, a common problem, Iran. And Israel has so many solutions to the problems that the Indians have as far as feeding their multitudes. So there's a, a wonderful partnership. And, of course, off the map uh, to the east there is Morocco. But what I want to just look at is Sudan, who's the latest one just this year in the news, because although initially Sudan signed uh, an accord with Israel to recognize Israel, they didn't sign the second part of the declaration that they were going to make peace. But that has changed, showing just how close we are to the return of the Lord Jesus. Now, Sudan is a very big country. It's the third biggest uh, African country and has special relevance because it was just 55 years ago that following the Six-Day War in 1967, when Israel miraculously, with the blessing of God, destroyed the Arab nations who were determined to wipe Israel off the map, that it was in Khartoum in Sudan that the Arab leaders met to decide what, what are we going to do now? Uh, and they made this uh, declaration that no peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, no negotiations with Israel. The three no's. And here we are, 
55 years later, Sudan is about to sign a peace treaty with Israel. That no, no, no has changed to, yes, we will make peace with Israel. Yes, we do recognize Israel. Yes, we do want negotiations with Israel. And that's truly remarkable. So that is a very significant step. So it was in just beginning of this month that the Israeli foreign minister went to Sudan and made this historic uh, agreement, uh, finalized the text of what was going to go into it. This was absolutely amazing. The establishment of relations with Sudan puts to an end 75 years of hostility ever since uh, Israel was born as a state. So this was a fascinating article, Sudan expanding the tent of the Abraham Accords. I'm pretty sure, yeah. Um, suddenly it was out in the daylight that Israel was not responsible for the absence of regional peace, but rather Islamic radicalization led by Iran, spreading chaos and instability. So they always blamed Israel, just as the United Nations, as uh, we saw, always blames Israel, so did the Arabs. But they now realize that that's not the situation. It's Iran that's the troublemaker, not Israel. And Israel has the ability to stand up to Iran. And so this is described as a, a, a setback um, for Iran. So the undeclared regional alignment with the UAE and Saudi Arabia by Sudan is enabling Khartoum to develop relations with Jerusalem. Uh, and it will mean that Israel will be much safer because uh, Sudan is on the Red Sea this is where the arms smuggling from Iran used to come through Sudan and from Sudan go on to smaller ships which were taken up to Hamas and other anti-Israel groups. So this is a historic change uh, that they're going to accept uh, Israel as a nation. Now it's taken a bit of time compared with the UAE and Morocco because they've had uh, a military rule for many, many years. And that's now uh, the present, uh, the old dictator has passed away. Uh, the new ruler is still a military man, but he's aligned not with Iran, but he's aligned with the UAE and Bahrain. And he is going to step down so that there can be a civilian government. Uh, and uh, that is when they will go to Washington to sign this decree, so something to look out for. But an absolute amazing change. Who would have thought that this country, the no, no, no country, would have to wait 55 years, but we see it as a yes, yes, yes country. And Israel is making full use of her agreements with the United Arab Emirates, uh, and just at the end of last year, they made a free trade agreement, which was the first that Israel has made with an Arab nation, so that 96% of the goods which are traded will be at uh, zero um, tariffs. So that, that's a great boost uh, to the trade, which is vastly increasing between little tiny Israel and the big rich market of the United Arab Emirates. And just this week, 
uh, it was announced that Oman, another of those countries that hasn't had formal relations with Israel, but behind the scenes uh, has had uh, relations um, with Israel, has now agreed that planes can fly over Oman. Saudi Arabia gave permission a couple of years ago, but that didn't really help Israel because Oman uh, refused to uh, allow it. And so the plane still had to take uh, great divergence when going to India and China and eastward. Um, but now, Israeli planes can fly over Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Oman, and it saves quite a few hours on trips to India and the Far East. So another important step as uh, one by one these nations come to realise that the friendship with Israel is what they need and a great boost. And so there is an Abraham Accord Peace Institute who published now an annual report and the, the 2022 had just come out um, last week and it made these, this is one of the statements from the former ambassador to the UAE, the Abraham Accords is the most significant breakthrough for peace and prosperity since the Marshall Plan. They most certainly have unlocked unlimited economic and cultural expansion between the UAE and Israel. Uh, 450,000 Israelis have visited, trade has expanded four times in just two years, and the potential to build peace throughout the broader Middle East is limitless. It will help to the broader Middle East nations to enter a golden period where the standard of living can expand uh, significantly. And if one looks at the trade between Israel and the UAE, you can see from 2019, you might not be able to read the figures there, but from the size of the graphs, they have uh, expanded absolutely astronomically. Uh, and as far as Bahrain was concerned, when did no trade until 21, you can see how it is shot up. They're different scales, by the way. Uh, and this is trade with Morocco, who's been friendly with Israel for quite a while. Uh, again, the agreement there has meant a lot of trade, boosting the wealth of Israel. So let's turn from the Abraham Accords and looking at the wealth of Israel. Uh, energy supplies have been absolutely boosted uh, just this uh, past few months because of the agreement which, through the United um, United States, Israel and Lebanon, who uh, unofficially are still at war, um, but they sat down and negotiated just where the boundary between Lebanon in the sea and Israel in the sea lies. It's very difficult because you, you take a, a right angle out from the coast and, you know, do you take it whereabouts on the bend do you say the boundary is? It can make a huge difference. Anyway, they have agreed a boundary which has enabled Israel to carry on developing the Karash uh, gas fields. So this is uh, Israel's uh, on the edge there. This is the Mediterranean. These are the uh, main fields that uh, Israel has. Now, I don't know whether I can just get the pointer to work. Let's just try. Um, 
So uh, Leviathan and uh, Tamar are the two big fields which have been uh, running for some time and bring in a lot of wealth. Uh, Dolphin and Dalit are small ones, but just provide uh, considerable uh, wealth for her. And what is uh, come now are these uh, two new fields. I can't do the pointer and that. That's a shame. Never mind. Um, the Athena, or Olympus as it's now called, uh, that was in July of last year. They struck um, gas in good quantity, so they knew that was a viable field. And Hermes down the bottom uh, in October, uh, again, was found to be a viable field. And so money is now being poured into these regions to get them going. And it is thought that uh, this, this year both of those will begin to come on stream. And then further over is the Karesh. Now the dispute has been settled between Israel and Lebanon. Uh, they now are on stream, so gas is flowing from that, uh, being sent down to Egypt to be turned into LPG to be exported to Europe. So there's a very active... Uh, development, uh, a lot of money being poured in by uh, companies which used to be very wary of dealing with Israel. But because of the changed situation with the peace accords, they're now not so worried of offending the Arab nations because the Arab nations are friendly with Israel, so that, that solves that problem. And so vast money is being poured in. Uh, and Leviathan is about to have a big expansion program that just this week. Uh, the backers of the Leviathan wells uh, have agreed to spend a lot of money drilling more wells and to actually provide a floating LPG station so that they, they can turn the gas into LPG uh, and export from there without having to send it down to Egypt. Now, they must still send to Egypt, but this will be an addition. So one can see how, after all these years of... Israel looking enviously at the Arab nations and their wealth from their oil. It's now happening in Israel, and these are major sources of income for Israel. And in fact, again, just last week, Israel exported their first oil because as a byproduct from the Karash fields, uh, there is oil, uh, and the first shipload was sent to Europe uh, just last week on the 16th. So a, a lot of uh, happening there. and It has been predicted, just looking at the Leviathan and uh, Tamar fields alone, that about 15 million, billion, sorry, 15 billion dollars um, will be poured into their wealth fund, sovereign wealth fund that they have set up to absorb all this money that they can gain from the exports of their gas, uh, and that's put into a wealth fund against a rainy day. So we, we, we see Israel prosperous, just as Ezekiel 38 talked about, and looking more and more to be able to dwell peaceably with her neighbours. And if Saudi Arabia signs up 
then we can see very rapid movements there. Uh, and remember, you know, 9.3 million people, so it's quite a big input to their uh, wealth fund of $15 billion. At the same time as Israel is increasing her revenue from her energy, Jews have been flocking back to their land. We never thought we would see half the Jewish population of the world living in Israel, but that's almost the figure now. So in the past year, immigration, driven by the events in Ukraine and in Russia with the call-up, Jews have been very afraid and have seen this writing on the wall to get out of Ukraine, to get out of Russia, and to return to Israel. So last year, the immigration hit a 23-year high. 70,000 people were added to Jewish uh, population last year, more than twice as many as the year before, highest number in over two decades. And so we see how God is bringing his people back. Now, in all fairness, that quotation from Jeremiah 16, 16, describing them being hunted and driven back in its proper fulfillment lies beyond Armageddon. When, with the invasion of Israel, Jews have been scattered out of Israel for one last time. And they've got to, they and all those that have not yet come back to Israel will be drawn back by the Lord Jesus Christ after he comes. The Economist, at the end of the year, in their last edition, ranked Israel as the fourth best performing economy. In spite of all the money they have to spend on defense, the economy is doing remarkably well. Uh, and earlier in October, it was this statement that over the past two decades, the Israeli shekel has strengthened against the US dollar by 35%. No other currency has strengthened against the dollar. Uh, to the same extent as that. Uh, Israel has one of the lowest inflation rates in the world. And uh, just finally, um, Israel's budget runs a surplus, unlike the British one, unlike the American one. So uh, it is amazing how this little country has prospered just at the right time to attract the nations. And uh, as we've heard earlier, uh, above all this is the prize of Jerusalem. That's where Christianity, Orthodox uh, Russia and the Vatican look to being the center. And that's what they want, to have control. They hate Israel being in charge of Jerusalem. And they're doing, they will come together uh, to change that. And just finally, a year of three prime ministers... A uh, year of great changes. Uh, uh, Bennett uh, was the existing prime minister and ran through till the middle of the year when, under the agreement that had been made setting up the 36th government, there was the handover to Lapid. Uh, so he took over in July. But because of problems, he couldn't get bills passed. He was forced to call uh, elections on November the 1st, which, uh, at the last moment, at the 11th hour, uh, Netanyahu managed to build a coalition 
most far-right coalition that Israel has ever had. And one of the things that he is pushing is to strengthen Israel's presence in Judea and Samaria, what the world calls the West Bank. And this is in Area C, which is under the Oslo Agreement, is the land that Israel should have control of. So Israel is legitimately on that area, and it should be free to build. But because of the EU opposition and Palestinian opposition, uh, everybody's up in arms at uh, this uh, change to the status. And we can see the build-up of the hysteria against Israel part of the frog spirits that uh, Brother Stephen was talking about. And he also um, is planning to modernise the judiciary system. And we can see the absolute hysteria, not only in Israel, but outside Israel, uh, at his desire to uh, modernise the judiciary system. Now, I haven't studied in detail, but uh, many will say, well, yes, it needs revising. So, Britain, we too have had three prime ministers. This is unprecedented, as far as Israel is concerned, as far as Britain is concerned, to have three prime ministers. Um, we've had four chancellors, three prime ministers, and two monarchs in this year. Now, uh, we always have two monarchs. When a monarch dies, they're immediately succeeded, but it's 70 years since there was a change in monarchy. It's been an exceptional year for Britain. Just at a time when uh, Isaiah 23, the 70 years of being forgotten, are come to an end now, uh, and Britain has a future, uh, not uh, in Europe, but across the world. So, yes, we now have got uh, Rishi Sunak, who's the youngest prime minister Britain has had for 200 years. And again, last year, after 70 years on the throne, Queen Elizabeth has died, and we're now under King Charles. And Britain prepares for this new future. So he's the first non-white prime minister, so that's a big change for Britain. The first Hindu Indian origin prime minister. Uh, he didn't obviously take his oath on the Bible, but on the Bhagwad Gita, if that's the correct pronunciation of their holy book. Uh, youngest Prime Minister, so William Pitt the Younger was only 24 when he became Prime Minister, but he died at the age of 46. Uh, Rishi is 42. Um, he has obviously very strong ties to India. And we think this is important because this is part of the Commonwealth. Uh, and Israel uh, and Britain has got to grow her links with the Commonwealth. So it's interesting that there's a prime minister whose parents came from India and therefore very uh, attached to them. Very wealthy man, but a strong supporter of Israel. And his promise to go attend to the uh, celebrations which will be made in a couple of months' time for the 75th anniversary uh, of the founding of Israel. And he supported the move of the embassy to Jerusalem. I know that has collapsed because of all the outcry, but it shows his with Israel and understands and is very much opposed to the boycott, divestment and uh, sanctions movement. He's a Brexiteer. He looks for global trade. So 
the next two parts will just roll together, ending of the 70 years of being forgotten and singing like a harlot. Hopefully this will be the last time we will show this. I've been showing it for the last three or four years. Uh, but now we come to the end. The Queen has died after 70 years and 214 days. And so that period of being Britain being forgotten uh, has come to an end. And now it is the time for Britain to reach out to the Commonwealth. You see, Isaiah 23 talks about this latter-day Tarshish power trading with all the nations of the world upon the face of the earth. So that's a great change for Britain, who's been in the EU and locked into that viewpoint. Now she's free, uh, though there are still strands there, which we'll look at in a moment. And, of course, the Queen's great work was to hold the uh, Commonwealth together. Without her steady hand, it, it would long have faded away. It grew from nine members at her coronation to 54 members, and we believe that work was all in preparation for today. She saved the Commonwealth. And just Tuesday, was it, 20th? Uh, the UK's strong priority should now be Commonwealth fellow member states. This is where you've got to look to, uh, said this article, and we agree with it. That's what Scripture says. Uh, uh, there were two significant speeches at the end of last year. In November the 28th, um, Sunak, uh, addressing the Lord Mayor's banquet, setting out his blueprint, and it was a maritime power that he saw was the role for Britain. The speech highlighted a maritime-centric geopolitical view. In it, the maritime order should represent Britain's highway to prosperity and the benchmark against which judging the country's profile as a security actor committed to open economies and societies. In other words, uh, we're going to use the sea, the passageway, build up Britain as a maritime power to take British thinking around the world just as it did when it set up its empire, but that all came to an end. But this is uh, a latter-day uh, regrowth of Britain as a maritime power. Now, we know there are many battles ahead as she seeks to break finally those yokes of the uh, EU, which, because of its political thinking, uh, goes so against British spirit of freedom and democracy. So uh, the second speech, a fortnight later, the Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, um, he was uh, talking to the Foreign Commonwealth Office and saying, we're going to prioritise our trade with Latin America, which I'm not quite so interested in, but Asia and Africa. This is where many of the Commonwealth countries are. For our part, Britain will demonstrate our long-term commitment to the Indo-Pacific, including by joining the Trans-Pacific Free Trade Agreement as soon as possible. We will deepen our cooperation with India, the new president of the G20, and finalise our trade agreement with them. So the Comprehensive and Progressive Trade Agreement for the Trans-Pacific Trade is a grouping of nations around the Pacific, Canada, Mexico, Peru, Chile, and all around there on the other side. And Britain is very keen to join this, and they are very keen for Britain to join. Um, Chile and um, Malaysia 
uh, have just had their membership confirmed just in the past few weeks. Uh, and Britain's application is uh, getting very close to being approved. And this is a huge market of 50, 500 million customers. That's bigger than the EU, and a market worth nine trillion pounds. So it's a huge market. This is where the growth is. And Britain wants to be part of it because she wants to trade with all nations of the world. So uh, she has made agreements with Australia and Canada. She's busy making agreements with India. These are trade agreements, Israel and the Gulf states. And of course, the last two are of tremendous interest to us because we know from Ezekiel 38 that Britain's got to be friendly with Israel, working with the Gulf states, the Sheba and Dedan countries, uh, and that is what we see this focus of dealing there. And again, it will bring great wealth to Britain if she can successfully sign agreements with all these countries. It shows her determination to be a trading country, wanting to have fingers in all these pies around the world. And this Indo-Pacific region, as I say, covers the Middle East and uh, uh, it also covers most of the Commonwealth countries. So Canada is outside that, but uh, she is very much part of the Commonwealth. So these Commonwealth countries are no longer dependent upon Britain. They're independent. They uh, go their own way. But they choose to have a friendship, an alliance, common bond of English uh, language and uh, English law applying to trade, so it's much easier to do trade with a Commonwealth country than it is to do with uh, non-Commonwealth countries. And so India is one of those growing countries which, uh, just as Israel, is very interested in working with India, so Britain is too. So we shall see great developments there. And Roughly 90% of uh, world trade passes uh, on the seas, and as far as UK is concerned, 95% of the trade that Britain does is transported by the sea. So sea is very important. That's why this emphasis on building up her maritime powers. Uh, and that's another subject, but that is what she's beginning to do. Uh, and interestingly, Kemi Brannock, uh, the Secretary's trade, a secretary of state for international trade, her parents came from Nigeria. So again, she's from the Commonwealth. She sees the benefit that Commonwealth and British trade does. So there's all this impetus to build up this trade, exactly as, uh, as it, uh, Isaiah 23 said. Now, compare that. These are countries that want to do business with Britain. Contrast that with the EU and the terrible struggles at the moment on the Northern Ireland issues. And uh, thought that he got it all tied up uh, and was going to announce last Tuesday, wasn't it, an agreement had been made with the EU, but he, he suddenly found they hadn't really understood the problem that the EU and Northern Ireland have for the people in Northern Ireland. And he's had to row back. Now, paper today was saying, well, he hopes to have something that he can announce tomorrow, but I will be very surprised if the EU are prepared to give up so much control that the people in Northern Ireland will accept it. It's all part of this pressure to push Britain away from Europe uh, and go its own course. 
And very interesting, some of the analysis that's now been carried out on when Britain was a member of the EU, she was the country that benefited least. She's bottom of the pile. In spite of being the one that, towards the latter end, was the second biggest contributor to the EU budget. So uh, a benefit, she put a lot of money in, but got very little out. Uh, and we know how unhappy the EU was when Britain left, because it left a big hole in their finances. Um, but uh, Britain is only a little country, ranked 21st in world population. 0.84% of the world's population live on its shores but she punches far above her weight. We see lots of problems and strikes and that kind of thing at the moment, but the long-term trend, uh, time and time again, they've had to revise their grim forecast that, you know, absolute disaster for Britain, but every time things aren't quite so bad, uh, and we can see that with the blessing of God that Britain will set out on this course and she ranks number five in uh, GDP rankings, and so is the smallest country, uh, and yet uh, with all the other, compared with all the other countries. And there are only three countries are described as capable of having a global reach. Uh, that's United States, United Kingdom, and France, who have got navies who can project their power to any part of the world. And just to the end of last September, Britain's pride and joy, the uh, aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth II was docked in New York Harbour, uh, and the marine bands and Catherine Jenkins was on board. You can see the takeoff ramps, and behind them the skyscrapers of New York. And they were there to promote global Britain. The Great Britain and Northern Ireland campaign, great is the government's flagship international communications program. The objective is to drive economic growth across the entire nation by encouraging an international audience to visit, study, trade, invest, live and work in the UK. Great invites the world to see things differently and to see a fresh side of the UK. Great showcases the UK as a dynamic, outward-looking, confident and collaborative, bringing unconventional thinking to the global challenges we face. Perhaps living here, we don't see that so much. That's how the world is beginning to see us. And they're wanting to, to trade with Britain. So Britain, certainly in the language of Isaiah 23, is now beginning to sing as a harlot to encourage nations to come and trade with Britain. And I have to say, you know, no reflection at all on Catherine Jenkins, who was leading the singing there. So our last part... Uh, is just to look very briefly at Ukraine and Turkey, and I've lumped those two together with the one word, annihilation. Yesterday was the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. <coughs> we were all expecting something significant to happen, but it hasn't. But it's interesting, you know, in the first opening month, Russia had taken 25% of Ukraine's territory, and that was followed by 11 months of Ukraine backed by NATO forces, grindingly, this goes back really to World War I tactics, slowly grinding 
um, as Russia slowly ground Ukraine, but terrible battles, terrible destruction. Uh, and it's now said that she has regained uh, half that territory that she lost. Uh, and what Putin's tactics have been has been to attack the power and heating and lighting systems in Ukraine, hoping that with a severe winter uh, and no power, no electricity, no lighting, that they will be driven into uh, submission. Well, that hasn't happened. Uh, unusually, they all have, Europe has had a fairly mild winter, so they haven't used the gas so much. And the Ukrainians have a remarkable spirit uh, and have endured terrible deprivations because they want to hang on to their country and not submit to Putin and his uh, dictatorship. So where is it all going to end? Because it, it's not just the buildings that he has annihilated, it's the culture as well. And there's a, a picture just taken a few days ago of books piled out uh, to be destroyed. These are books written in Ukrainian, which the Russians have seized out of the libraries and bookshops to destroy because they want to obliterate the culture. Uh, they want them to go back to speaking in Russia, Russian. Um, and as well as that, they have kidnapped uh, 16,000 Ukrainian children in the areas that they have occupied uh, and sent them across Russia to these rehabilitation, re-education camps to change their mindset. So that links with uh, what Brother Stephen was talking about. It's, it's a way of thinking. So where will it all end? I, I can't answer that question, brothers and sisters. But scripture guides us, as our first two speakers have said. Uh, and it is when we combine Revelation 16 and Daniel chapter 2 that we realize that in the forming of the feet, we have today's situation, that the legs both came to an end in World War I, and we've been living through a hundred and more years with the feet being formed, and we, we still got to see the completion of the feet. One in Constantinople, when Russia takes uh, Turkey, uh, and the other in Rome, when the EU builds its power. And all we can say is that the events of the past year will be the impetus which will lead the EU to bind themselves together as this United States of Europe to be the Holy Roman Empire uh, Western section uh, and Germany as its leader. Now, as Stephen says, we probably won't be there. We'll be called away to judgment when these things, last stages, take place. But what we have to note is who is the head of the image? And it is the golden head. It's not Babylon of old. That's gone. But the one that represented by Babylon today is the papacy. They have adopted it, as we have heard. So it will be the papacy, as we've been told. We'll use the opportunity to suddenly bring a cessation of hostilities 
and persuade Russia and Europe to work together because there's another enemy that we want to take. A, Constantinople, and B, uh, Jerusalem. And in the spirit of this age, he will succeed. Scripture says so. The actual steps we cannot foretell. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, but that's what's got to happen. The two got to be bound together so the two feet can form. And religion is going to be what brings the armies down into Israel to defeat the Jewish nation. So if we just put onto a modern map and... uh, Uh, Luke has done this already, but we can see the division between the Orthodox, and this is in the the 1064 schism, that there are an awful lot of nations that have to be pulled to the uh, Russian, they belong to the Russian foot, uh, not to the uh, European foot. And so great changes have got to take place in this region, uh, and they can happen quite rapidly. So for us, what we're looking for is the return of the master. For us, it's not next year in Jerusalem. It's next year or this year or this month or tomorrow at Sinai to be with our Lord. That preparation of that body of immortalized people who can save Israel, can save the world from itself, can get rid of this terrible system of humanism. Uh, and destroy the dragon uh, power completely and transform it into the kingdom of God. Now, we read from Isaiah, from Psalm 46 and Isaiah 2 and other passages in Ezekiel, um, Zechariah, speak of God shaking the earth terribly. And as a foretaste, we have seen the devastating effects that that has had in Syria and Turkey, and the same shaking has been felt in Israel. Um, they're very worried because they're on the same earthquake zone. It, it runs up from the Red Sea, up through Israel, up the Rift Valley, uh, and across into the area where the earthquakes were. Uh, and we saw thousands of buildings just absolutely collapsing, and the experts are saying that is preventable. Though it was a big earthquake, Many buildings have survived because they were built to survive the earthquake. And because of corruption in Turkey, many people have perished unnecessarily. But what we know is that there's going to be a really big, big, big earthquake. And that's going to be when the Lord Jesus and the saints come to save Israel and the Mount of Olives is split in two. We can see the preparation that God has made, that there's already an east-west fault line. So when his feet stand upon it and it talks about the mountain going north and south, we can see God's built it in. It will happen. And that earthquake will have devastating effects around the world. God's judgments. We've had financial crises. We've had COVID. And now we're beginning to have earthquakes. Earthquake today in Wales. Um, This is what is happening on a global scale. Things are going wrong for the world. They're getting really worried about it. That's what God promised. At the time of the end, his judgments will be like the pangs of a birth, 
step by step, getting stronger and stronger and stronger until the final revelation of the Lord Jesus and the saints. And here we are, brothers and sisters. We are at the door. And we have to go away from here. And we have to think of our life and what changes we need to make in order to be of use to our master. It doesn't want our wealth. He doesn't want our homes, our cars, our possessions. He wants what we've stored up there, brothers and sisters and young people. So let's determine that we go away from here and look at our lives, build ourselves up, and realize that the master is at the door. And wonderful times will come after a period of destruction, but out of it will arise a wonderful kingdom. So just finally, my usual slide, so quarterly probably updates um, the milestones, quarterly updates in the Bible magazine. If you haven't signed up, go and sign up to the Bible magazine. Uh, and two or three times a week, if you're very keen, there are the snippets. Um, it's what I use as my uh, preparation for these talks. So that's the milestonesuk at gmail.com if you want to sign up to the milestones or the snippets. And all my talks you'll find on the CD video link. Um, they've all been brought together. So thank you, my dear brothers and sisters and young people. Let this day be something that stirs you. We've had some fascinating talks. The word of God is alive and living and has to change us to be like the Lord Jesus, to dedicate ourselves to serve our God. Thank you.